You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. 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 To the Freedom Pact. Welcome back to the Freedom Pact podcast, my friends. Today on the show, we are joined by Professor Brian Keaton. Dr. Keaton is a distinguished professor of physics at the University of California, host of the Into the Impossible podcast, and best-selling author of Losing the Nobel Prize. Going into this episode, I had a bit of curiosity about the universe and how we got you. So in this episode, expect to learn Professor's Keaton take on what happened right at the beginning of time, what set off the Big Bang, how did life emerge from non-life, how improbable is it that we should be here today, why you should write an ethical will, and how to bounce back from failures from um, the man that lost a Nobel Prize. I hope you enjoy this conversation with the eminent Dr. Brian Keaton. Dr. Keaton, such a pleasure having you here. It's a pleasure to be with you, Joe. I'm a great fan of your podcast as well. So I figured that today we could have a bit of a uh, a bit of a free-for-all and discuss some personal development, your books, some physics, academia, and some learning. But I figured, you know, with this show, we like to toss our guests some hand grenades. Uh, so I would love to do this conversation in a sort of chronological type of order. Um, so let's go right back to the start of time. Um, now, you've spent a lot of time, I know, from me doing my research into you, pondering some of the deepest questions in science. So I would love to know, because this was a question that our audience kept asking us and asking us to ask you, what would be your sort of theory or what evidence do we have or any ideas about what happened right at the beginning of time? Yeah, those are, of course, the questions I usually get posed to me with a with a prefix. This is a simple question, but uh, <laughs> what happened at the beginning of time? Or, or worse, what happened before the beginning of time? Uh, which is a question that uh, none other than Stephen Hawking uh, over there at Cambridge, not too far from where you are, he posed that question or he, he claimed posing that question was as nonsensical as asking what's north of the North Pole. In other words, what happened before time began is as crazy as asking what's north of the North Pole, but we're in the Christmas season and we all know Santa is north of the North Pole, right? So take it from a practicing cosmologist, a Jewish cosmologist. Uh, but seriously, the, uh, that is a phenomenal question. And the answer is we don't really know, but what we do know is what we don't know. In other words, we have known unknowns, things that we know we don't know that we are attempting to answer with projects like the Bicep Array Project, or the Bicep Project that I talk about in my book, Losing the Nobel Prize, and the Simons Observatory, which I frequently talk about on the, on the podcast. And that is to understand if there was a beginning of time 
And if meaning a beginning, a singular beginning, were there multiple beginnings? That's a possibility. Uh, was there no beginning? Is it essentially static or quasi-static and just gives the appearance of changing with time? Or uh, did it begin in what is called an inflationary expansion, an ultra rapid, faster than the speed of light, some say expansion of space and time itself. And I always say the most interesting thing that I could possibly study is what happened on the Tuesday before the Big Bang. In other words, was there time before time? And it's a very, very non-trivial question because one thing, for example, let's say time itself comes into existence at that time, as Hawking claimed in his many books, including his most famous book, A Brief History of Time, he speculated with that time itself cleaved off. It began in a certain way, uh, in a very, very uh, particular way at the uh, what we call the Big Bang. But in actuality, the Big Bang is sort of a misnomer. What we call the Big Bang means something very different to you, to you than it does to me. And I can get into that if you like. Yeah, I mean, I would love to do that and sort of jump into the Big Bang. I mean, I would. Uh, th this fascinates me. I mean, you know, what sort of center of what happened in the early moments of the Big Bang? Could, could we go there? I, I'm so interested yeah. in this. So first, let me blow your mind for a second. Okay. So if time had a beginning, how did it know when to begin? I mean, I got this crazy clock over here that's counting down the blue wedge. When it gets to zero, I'm going to drink that bottle of scotch. Uh, <laughs> but, the, uh, but the fact is, uh, if time has a beginning, what tells it what time to begin? In other words, what, how does time propagate if time has a beginning? Whether or not it began as Hawking and Hartle and others speculated, it sort of cleaved off and, and converted a space dimension into a time dimension, or whether or not it came into existence via this uh, sort of uh, inflationary expansion effectively, uh, the question is a very valid one. And it has incredible implications, not only for, uh, for science, but also for philosophy and for uh, even theology in some sense, uh, because it can directly conflict as Hawking himself claimed that if time itself had a beginning, there was essentially no need for a creator. He didn't, uh, he didn't say that he mandated or he would force or he would make fun of people that didn't believe in God, but he would say there'd be no point to a God if time had a beginning. Uh, and he believed that till his dying day. I'm actually speaking with his final co-author, uh, Leonard Malad now this Friday. I will be up on the Into the Impossible Dr. Brian Keating YouTube channel soon about their book together called The Grand Design, which really laid out in more detail some of the conjectures that Stephen had put forth in 1980s with A Brief History of Time. So the answer is, we don't know what happened if you go back 13.798 billion years ago. We know that the elements on the periodic table, if you're, if you're watching, you can see the periodic table over my shoulder over there, over that giant poster of a wonderful audiobook. Uh, but uh, the first three elements on the periodic table, uh, helium, uh, hydrogen rather, helium and lithium, those we know were created three minutes after something happened. We don't know what happened necessarily. It could be the creation of time. It could be the collapse of a previous universe, or it could be the nucleation of a bubble universe uh, that we call our observable universe within a much vaster landscape of other universes called the multiverse. So those three different options have radically different implications for the notion of time and the notion of the origin of everything that we observe. 
But the thing I want your listeners to, to really grasp is that we don't know what happened before those first three elements were formed. We have very little idea about it because it's very hard to test, impossible in some sense to test on laboratories on earth because we can't replicate those conditions, say a trillionth of a second after the origin of time, if it did indeed have an origin. And the multiverse, which you mentioned there, um, I understand that this is some sort of uh, a heat, a point of heated debate amongst, uh, you know, scholars. I wonder, could you give our audience a run through of what the multiverse is and why it's a sort of contentious yeah. uh, concept? So your listeners will probably have uh, familiarity with uh, Galileo Galilei. I've got a doll of him somewhere around here. I can find <laughs> that somewhere. I've got a whole bunch of dolls. I've got Einstein who will play a role later on. I'm going to bring up Einstein, of course. Here's Galileo. Uh, so Galileo used that little telescope there. He didn't invent the telescope, but he did popularize it and improve upon it dramatically over the earlier Dutch version of the spyglass. And Galileo used the spyglass that he had uh, optimized as a uh, cunning entrepreneur that he was. He used that to observe a miniature solar system of satellites orbiting the great planet Jupiter, which was known to orbit the, the Earth or thought to orbit the Earth. But instead, he found that there were these three, four satellites, which we now call the Galilean satellites, and they were orbiting Jupiter, clearly not orbiting the Earth at all. And so Galileo overthrew the notion that the Earth is the center of the universe based on essentially what was known as the Copernican hypothesis, Copernican model for the universe, which itself upended thousands of years of dogma dating back to Aristotle, Ptolemy, etc. So the notion that the Earth is another planet was now unavoidable. You had to believe that if you were at all thinking consciously. And so after that, the notion of whether or not the sun was the center of the universe came next. Is the sun the center of the universe? No. We later learned the sun is just an ordinary star in the outskirts of a galaxy. In fact, it's one of maybe 100 billion other stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Perhaps the Milky Way galaxy is the center of the universe. Nope. It's not the center of the universe. There's maybe a, a bill, hundred billion or a trillion other galaxies tantamount to the Milky Way galaxy in the universe that we can observe. Now, all scientists accept that there could be regions of our universe outside of what is called our horizon, just like I can't see England from here or Japan from Southern California, but I know it exists and I could detect an earthquake in Japan as happened in 2011, I can detect an earthquake by the waves of water and information that come over the horizon to me. So there are regions outside my view, direct view, but I can still detect their presence. So there could be other regions of our own universe that we can't see, or there could also be other universes. And that's a conjecture that has gained a lot of traction in recent decades, along with the advent of two very interesting and highly disparate theories within physics. One is called string theory, and the other one is called uh, multiverse or inflationary cosmology. One involves the very tiniest elements of matter, of energy called vibrating superstrings. The other uh, that are perhaps you know, thousands of times smaller, millions of times smaller than an electron, uh, and truly might be the fundamental building blocks of matter. On the other hand, we have the entirety of the universe and perhaps uh, 10 to the 500th other universes. So they're radically opposite sides of, of the distance ladder, if you will, of the size scale dynamic. And yet they seem to be potentially interrelated to one another in that they both predict 
and their interrelated properties are that there might be different laws of physics and therefore different properties of strings within each one of these 10 to the 500 universes within the multiverse. And they seem to both be concomitant. One depends on the other one. And so, yes, these both have received a lot of attention lately. And yet, as time goes on, we seem to be getting uh, hints that perhaps at least the way that string theory was conceived is not being borne out in the laboratory, in our observations of the finest properties of space and time that we can observe. That has led other people, many of whom I've had on my podcast, including Stephen Wolfram, Eric Weinstein, Garrett Lisi, and Julian Barber uh, coming up. And uh, they all have different theories, alternative theories to string theory because of this problem of the non-observation of claimed detectable phenomena from string theory. Now the question becomes, is there evidence for the multiverse? And that's a good portion of what my book, Losing the Nobel Prize, is about. I love it, man. I love it. And I'm sure that at this point now, people are thinking to themselves, okay, you know, we sort of uh, painted a sort of picture of the start and then how would life then emerge from non-life? Yeah, you're, you're asking all these simple, simple questions. <laughs> Thank you for teeing it. It's your, it's your Hanukkah gift to me. Um, very good question. So I say that there are actually four big bangs. There's the big bang in which, you know, matter came out of non-matter. In other words, energy was converted into matter. And all physicists nowadays believe that. There was some event, it could have been the origin of time, as I said earlier, and it, or it could have been the recollapse or the shrapnel of a previous universe that had collapsed, or as my friend and, um, and, and uh, Oxfordian professor Roger Penrose, Sir Roger Penrose, who was on the show after he won the Nobel Prize this year, um, he's a good friend of the show, he believes that there are no even singularities that take place. In other words, no inf points of infinite density, infinite temperature, which I happen to you know, find uh, philosophically pleasing. Mm -hmm. But what I find pleasing is the complete irrelevance to the cosmos. So, um, so there's the Big Bang that potentially, but even Sir Roger, I should say, even though there, uh, he doesn't feature a singularity in his cosmology, he still believes the origin of the elements on the periodic table over there right? So he knows that they took place, that they are formed. That's matter emerging from energy. So it's kind of like a chicken or egg problem. There's something coming from nothing. The nothing has to be defined, but the nothing in this case is non-matter produces matter. Then next, how does that matter produce, uh, eventually produce stuff, molecules, organic compounds, and eventually produce life? How does that life uh, come from non-life? Those elements, hydrogen, Helium and lithium are not really, uh, you know, what we think about when we think of life, where we think about carbon, nitrogen, et cetera. And then we think about evolving those into amino acids, proteins, RNA, DNA, et cetera. So that's the origin of life from non-life or first the origin of, 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 you know, carbon and et cetera, that make organic compounds from inorganic chemistry. Then there's the origin of life from inorganic, from organic chemistry. That's something we need to explain. And uh, we kind of glibly say that with enough time and evolution uh, or from life could come from elsewhere in the universe and land on the earth, but that doesn't solve the problem of life from non-life. And then the last step is consciousness from non-conscious objects. So once life comes about, I don't think you would agree that a bacterium has consciousness, although there are people that believe even quarks and electrons, it's called panpsychism. I, I find that completely absurd. 
to think about it, but uh, people do suggest in certain theories uh, that, that even inanimate objects are conscious or participate in the conscious project uh, process. Uh, but then eventually we have to get technological life and, and so forth that are, is conscious in order to be able to detect their presence or absence in the universe. So these are the four different huge steps. And even if you assign a probability to each one of one in a billion, so, so 10 to the ninth, one out of 10 to the ninth, which is pretty, pretty you know, large on the scale of, of what we're talking about. And you go through the math, that means that there's a one in 10 to the 36 power. So one in a billion, 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 a billion, or a trillion, trillion, trillion of life emerging in some sense, or a barrier to life uh, emerging. Uh, and then you say, well, there's only how many stars are there in the universe? I, I worked that out before. It's like 100 billion stars in each galaxy, and there's 100 billion galaxies. So you, you put 10 to the eighth times 10 to the eighth, and you only get 10 to the 16th. That means there's almost a one in, in 10 to the 18th chance that there is life elsewhere in the universe that's like us consciously. And I think this is a gross underestimation. Uh, I personally feel like there is no other conscious life in the universe besides what we find on earth. If you decide to call you and me conscious. We recently had uh, professor Donald Hoffman um, on the show. Uh, I, I, I don't think he's been on the into the impossible show. Is no, he? no. I'd love to have him on. Sometime. I would love to set you two guys up. He was phenomenal. Um, and we, this has been something which we've talked about on the sort of show. Um, so I would love to just throw you one more sort of uh, yeah. easy bat. What are your thoughts on the origin of consciousness? <laughs> <laughs> well, I find it uh, even more kind of daunting than finding about the origin of matter and the origin of, of the universe itself, because I don't think we're at the point where we can come up with a universal definition of consciousness. There are famous essays. I'm sure you talked about Thomas Nagel. What's it like to be a bat? Uh, even Galileo talked about consciousness in, in his early works and speculated that it's impossible really to make great progress. There's a great book about it called, I think, Galileo's Error. Um, and uh, that came out about a year ago about, you know, the scientific method, depending on the existence of conscious observers. And I, I'm going to try to get that author on the podcast. Uh, but but the point is, I don't think that people really agree on what it means to have consciousness, let alone uh, how it could originate. So in other words, Darwin used to say things like, it's impossible to speak about the origin of life. It's just as crazy. Literally, he said this, it's just as impossible to think about the origin of matter. Well, I just told you that we know how matter began to uh, exist through the Big Bang nucleosynthetic process that I talk about in my book and is the foundation of the latest, uh, the earliest time that we really have good physical evidence for the physical phenomena in the universe. That was the first three minutes of cosmic evolution. So Darwin was wrong about that. And yet I don't feel like we even have a, an understanding of what it means to be conscious that I could then use and say, now my theory explains how that fits in. So I talked about it with Noam Chomsky on my podcast. There were a lot of uh, interesting uh, little little tidbits there. I refer people to that interview on the Dr. Brian Keating YouTube channel or on iTunes. And and the point is is that you know it's an extremely complicated process that not even someone like him who thinks about these issues you know continually, it just it almost seems hopeless. And and uh, I sort of agree with that with that uh, concept. It's interesting because Andrew Huberman, when he was on the show, he said that consciousness is 
he described it as a, a question that scholars have loved to have fallen in love with, but it's a question which they've probably wasted too much time on, uh, which is, you know, a, an interesting um, sort of thing. I'd love to just tie this sort of segue up and just what you've described there. It sounds to me as if it's highly improbable uh, that we should actually even be here. Like how sort of how unlikely and how grateful should it, should we be that, I mean, we are, are actually here. Yeah, well, I think gratitude is the most uh, important trait in my fellow human being. Uh, it's impossible to be angry and grateful at the same time. You're like, I argue with my my wife or something, and I'm like, I really love you. You're the best wife in the world. You know, it's it's those things are incompatible, right? Um, so it's a wonderful trait. In fact, I'm Jewish. Just to take a sidetrack here, in Jewish, Judah, the word in Hebrew means uh, thankful. So, uh, so it's a core part of my religious practice that gratitude is to be given. You're supposed to like say a blessing, you know, thanks before you eat anything, let alone, you know, something like, uh, that used to be alive and had parents and, you know, like an animal that's even higher form of, of food than an apple, but, or even drinking a glass of water, you're supposed to say a blessing of thanks because you're appreciating how wonderful the world is. And I think that makes you a happier person. Uh, but that's a sidetrack. I'm not going to proselytize. I never do that. Um, but, <laughs> but getting to this point of, yes, is it, uh, is this something like worthwhile, um, you know, presuppose that uh, I, I think it is incredibly improbable. And I think, you know, for me, uh, the transcendent nature uh, and the precarious nature both makes me want to, you know, preserve the world, uh, at least for my kids. You know, I always ask like, Joe, do you know the names of your great, great, great grandfather on your mother's side? I don't, I don't. They don't. And I he don't. doesn't know about you. So it's like, <laughs> you know, screw that guy, you know, it's seven generations. But I do care about my kids and maybe my grandkids and hopefully I'll live to have, you know, grand, great grandkids or whatever. But but the point is um, we have a, an obligation, you know, kind of more to people that are alive now and generations that are, that are going to come. And so I do believe that the precariousness of the improbability of life existence, on my hand, I do use that to kind of enhance my own happiness, as I just mentioned, by being grateful for even the smallest things. I mean, it's interesting, again, you know, in my religion, you're supposed to say a blessing when you see a rainbow and you're like, what the hell, you know, does rainbow have, but it's like, it doesn't, ha imagine the world was black and white. I've great good friends that are colorblind and and one of my kids might be colorblind i'm not quite sure yet but um but the notion of like being able to appreciate colors now color is completely subjective you have no idea if you see the same golden medallion that i see it or you know faraday used to talk about the candle flame and how it's 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 perception is completely unique to the observer so all those things yes it does make me have this this great appreciation for life i in my case do use it to like uh, become uh, you know, more centered in my, in my daily, you know, routine. And in, in other words, if nothing's horrific, life is pretty terrific. I, lo I love that mantra, man. I love that mantra. So I figured this would be a great place to jump into your fascinating book, losing the Nobel prize. Um, so I figured this would be a sort of great place. If you wouldn't mind to sort of give us a history of um, the sort of Nobel Prize and how we've sort of waned away from Alfred Nobel's original desire of, of what he wanted. Yeah, so the book is a, it's a memoir. It's, it's more of a kind of um, autobiography, uh, uh, so to speak, a, a memoir of what it's like to be a young scientist striving to make the ultimate contribution 
in my case, it was partially a personal, I wouldn't say a grudge, but it was competitiveness with my father, who was a great scientist. And he did kind of abandon me and my older brother as young children and, uh, and leave our lives for many years. He did come back into them, as I describe in the book. But uh, he was a great scientist and mathematician, and I want to outdo him. It's like a kid, you know, his father's in the NBA. Like I see LeBron James's kid and he's, you know, in America, he's trying to get into the NBA and he's trying to outdo his dad. And, and uh, luckily I hope for him, LeBron is a much better dad than, than I had, <laughs> at least as a kid. Um, but, but the point being, I wanted to do something my dad never did. And that was to um, win a Nobel Prize doing what I did, which was cosmology. And so uh, after I got fired from Stanford University, which is one of the most prestigious institutions in the world, um, I started to think about different ways that I could make a contribution, sort of being free of obligations as an academic and maybe striking out on my own. And luckily, I obtained a new kind of father figure in my life, a man by the name of Andrew Lang, professor at Caltech. Uh, which is, you know, arguably one of the best institutions in the whole world to study physics and cosmology. So he took me under his wing. We built a project called BICEP, and it was funded initially by a Nobel Prize winner at Caltech, David Baltimore, uh, who is the president of Caltech. And he really funded it because he thought we had a shot maybe of winning the Nobel Prize. And certainly we did. Uh, and through it all, as we came close to it and even made an announcement that we had taken the earliest possible baby picture of the infant universe, um, I still realized that I was not going to win the Nobel Prize. Even though everybody said that we were going to win the Nobel Prize as a team, the BICEP2 team, I still knew that I personally wouldn't win it. And then uh, eventually that, pre that, that uh, premonition came true and that we didn't win the Nobel Prize. You know, spoiler alert, you know, <laughs> I didn't win the Nobel Prize, everybody, if you couldn't tell from the name of the book. <laughs> uh, and yet I was asked to, uh, to be a nominator for the Nobel Prize of the, the year that I theoretically might have been eligible to win it. Uh, and I don't know if I could have been nominated or whatever the, that year, but I was asked to be a nominator for the people that would win the Nobel Prize in 2016. And so I went through that obligation or that request to nominate people as any good scholar would do. And I look back into Alfred Nobel's will. Alfred Nobel was a very strange character, very interesting character. He was a self-proclaimed misanthrope that loved humanity so much that he gave his entire fortune to benefit mankind via inventions and discoveries in physics, chemistry, um, medicine, uh, and peace and literature. Economics was never his intention. He, that was added on 70 years after his death. He died a year after he wrote down his will. And in his will, he specified that the prize must go to somebody who made the world better, a single person who did that in the preceding year. So there's only three chapters in the book. I'm holding it up. Let's see if it'll focus on this. There's three chapters that my publisher allowed me to print in this gray uh, kind of border there. So there's only three chapters about what's wrong with the Nobel Prize. But throughout, I'm telling a story of how it feels to be a scientist aspiring to the, reach the highest heights and coming up short because it's my firm belief, again, from my you know, biblical uh, background, uh, which is complicated. You know, I was an altar boy in the Catholic church. You'll find that out if you read the book. Uh, then I was an atheist. Now I'm a practicing uh, Jew. But, but the point is um, I came to see it as an idol, as this, this kind of three inch medallion of solid gold that I'm holding up in my hand right now. No, this is chocolate. But, um, <laughs> but that it became an idol for me as a, you know, at the time, a secular scientist and for many people and my colleagues as well. And so 
it's a story about that and how to overcome this and to maybe redeem the Nobel legacy such that it reflects the glory and the nobility that Alfred Nobel so, uh, so you know, honestly wanted to bestow upon the world. You mentioned Alfred Nobel's will. I would love to touch on this concept, which you speak very elegantly about, of an ethical will, what it is, and why we should want one. <laughs> yeah. So I talk about this on my podcast. It's become my signature, you know, kind of go-to. You know, I'm trying my best to be like uh, this guy, Tim Ferriss here. <laughs> you know, I'm hoping uh, one of my friends has been on the show uh, many times and, and uh, another one, Jan 11, who would be a great guest for your show. I'll put you guys in touch. She's brilliant. Um, but the um, she's been on his show too, but he always has these like signature takeaway uh, you know, questions that he asks all of his guests. And one of them is what would you put on a billboard for everyone to see? So I've converted that to what would you put on a monolith like in Arthur C. Clarke's 2001 Space Odyssey at time capsule to last for all time. So he's got the, Tim's got the space dimension covered. So I figured I'd take the time dimension. <laughs> but I also asked them, what would you put in an ethical will? Because as I say, Alfred Nobel had an ethical will. It wasn't just, I'm going to give this money to this philanthropy. It was, I'm going to do something with what I want most in life to make the world more peaceful and to benefit the world, remove pain in medicine, create new discoveries uh, that can benefit the world uh, in technology. And so he actually didn't want things like the Higgs boson. I mean, that wasn't really in his mind. It was more like the x-ray machine um, that has, you know, I diagnosed dental problems that I had a couple months ago. So that did but make my life tangibly better and won the first Nobel Prize in physics in 1901. So I think um, this ethical will is an important question that everybody should ask themselves. And I've asked this of most of my guests, if not all of them, including the Nobel Prize winners. I've had on eight Nobel Prize winners so far more to come hopefully. And I always ask them, what would you put in your ethical will to give as, as um, sort of a, a um, warning or to bequeath as wisdom for future generations? And I've been just blown away by the kinds of responses that I get um, ranging from, you know, kind of uh, having courage um, to being humble to uh, to going into the impossible by by really overcoming the imposter syndrome. That's become a huge theme on the show. I've asked these Nobel Prize winners, and you should listen. There are some that say, no, what are you talking about? Me? Imposter? No, they should have given me two Nobel Prizes. Uh, to other people saying, I, I, I can't believe they even gave it to me. And that's been the most revealing thing, kind of humanizing scientists. And that's one of the subjects of my new book that's going to come out hopefully next year. I'm like uh, in the Tim Ferriss realm, I was either going to call it, you know, he's got tools of Titans. Uh, so this is an exclusive for freedom impact. Uh, I'm going to do lessons from laureates or think like a Nobel prize winner. You guys uh, put in the comments, which, which one you like uh, the best. But the point is I'm going to distill these takeaways from all the guests that I've had on the show into a, a short book, uh, but that people can really see the commonalities, the tactics, the tricks, the habits, uh, but also the humanity of science's greatest minds. As a side note, the uh, episode which you did with Stephen and Eric, uh, which I know has got a, a lot of views now, I mean, that could be a book by itself. So I will definitely keep a close eye out for it. Uh, yes, so yes, of, it might, yes. Yeah. So you sort of mentioned this sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, answers which your guests gave you to that question. So what would your answer to that question be? Ah, so I, I do include that in my book, but I'll, I'll give you kind of a hint towards it, which is that 
I feel that, you know, the sort of speak that what I do in the lab kind of provides for me, it, it provides uh, uh, an income, you know, it's my job to, to work in the laboratory to work with my students. Um, and yet, uh, what I teach them in the lab, I hope is less, you know, uh, less meaningful in some sense, or I don't want to say less meaningful, but I hope that the lessons I teach them outside the lab, how I, you know, prioritize my personal family and my laboratory family uh, at the highest level above any prize that you could possibly win. And, uh, and, and for them to have a sort of sense of patience, a sense of humility in front of science, but most of all, a sense of gratitude, which you brought up, Joe, which is to really, you know, inculcate a sense that what we're doing is so special. And it's really only in the last hundred years in the Western countries. And now thankfully in Eastern countries and even in Africa, uh, places are coming to have excess capital to train people like me to do what one of my guests, Nobel laureate Shelley Glashow called useless work. <laughs> in other words, just investigating the properties of mathematical intricacies that operate at the subatomic scale. That has no practical purpose. It's not even what Alfred Nobel had conceived of, uh, you know, 127 years ago when he first started his will. And so I think those kinds of things are what make us important, make us human and make us worth defending. Not the technology that we produce, not the insights into, you know, Bitcoin or whatever that we can provide, but, uh, but no more than that, the wisdom that we get outside the lab, the life we build outside the lab, that's the meaning of your life. Completely agree, man. That was a beautiful answer. Um, so looking at sort of your life, you're a distinguished professor. You've had a lot of career success. You've got a fantastic podcast. But as you mentioned, you've also had a lot of setbacks. Um, you know, in essence, you lost a Nobel Prize. You mentioned that, um, you know, you uh, were let go of a, a pretty cushy academic job at Stanford. Um, so I'd love to know, how have you bounced back from setbacks within your career? You forgot, like, remarkably handsome. But uh, <laughs> I've had many setbacks. And recently, I've been having this kind of discussion that I ask some people. I've had a Noah Kagan, uh, who's a popular podcaster here uh, in America, jo Jordan Harbinger, James Altucher. So I, I like to study other podcasters. I study you guys because uh, I think you guys are phenomenal. But um, but I always ask, you know, when I have a podcaster on, I, I'll ask you because I got you on the line. And until you come on my podcast sometime next year, I'm going to ask you. Uh, if you if you ever hear the words like it was the best thing that ever happened to me, do you mm. know what the most uh, probable two words that precede that sentence are? I don't. I don't. What are they? It's I failed. Wow. If you search on it, it'll be I failed. And it was the best thing that ever happened. Or I got fired. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. I say that in my book as well. The point being that, um, and I make this analogy as, a, as an air, airplane pilot, I'm not an airline pilot, but I, I fly tiny little planes in my uh, non-existent free time. But, um, but if you're flying from, uh, from Cardiff to London, you know, let's say that's 200 kilometers or so, something like that, right? Uh, and then you turn around and go back, let's say there's a hundred kilometer uh, per hour headwind going there and then a hundred kilometer per hour headwind coming back and you fly 200 kilometers per hour in your, in your plane. Like my plane can do about 200 kilometers per hour. Um, so naively with no wind, it would take one hour to get there and one hour to get back. But with a hundred mile an hour headwind, it'll take a little bit longer, but you might think, ah, oh, I'll make it up on the way back. So it'll still take two hours because I'll get a tailwind of the same amount pushing you back. But if you go through the math, you'll find it's impossible. You'll actually take longer than two hours 
for example, if you have a 200 mile an hour headwind, uh, it doesn't matter. You're going to have a 200 mile an hour tailwind. You're never going to get there, right? Because your plane only goes 100 miles and 200 miles an hour, 200 kilometers an hour into a 200 uh, kilometer per hour headwind. You'll never get there. So what's the lesson from that? Enjoy the headwinds. Enjoy the struggle because you're going to spend more time in the headwinds than the tailwinds. You ever see like a cricket player? I don't know. Do they play cricket in Wales? They do. They do. They do. They do. They All right. Do. Let's just say uh, soccer. I know you guys hate <laughs> okay. Manchester United. My best friends are at Manchester. Okay. So what's your local team in Cardiff called? I forgot. Cardiff City. Cardiff City. Cardiff City. Okay. Cardiff City. <laughs> they win whatever the World Cup or or whatever. They win anything. Um, or, or the local cup, whatever. Uh, and then uh, the next year, what are their chances of coming back year after year after year for hundreds of years? They'll never do it, right? No team has won probably more than two or three in a row, right? Just like no one's won more than two Nobel Prizes in physics in uh, 250 people. Uh, only one person in history won two prizes in physics. And so you're never going to get back into the promised land if you make it there, uh, necessarily. It's just, it's just too rare. The lightning doesn't strike twice. And most of my interviews, they say luck played such a huge role in their winning the Nobel Prize. So from my perspective, dealing with those adversities means appreciating the struggle for the struggle itself, doing the work day after day, year after year, and not being so siloed like a, uh, like a, like a bee, you know, that just does one thing and that's all it can do. No, we should be diverse. The human mind is the most splendid computer that's ever been devised. We should exercise it to its full capacity. And that means enjoying even the hardships that you initially think are going to be maybe permanently detrimental. No, in the end, you might find out it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I agree with that so violently. I thought that was a, a beautiful answer. I got two questions for you left. Um, I always love bringing on academics because myself, I am fascinated with learning and this is an educational show. So I love this sort of um, passion and curiosity, which you carry yourself with the diversity of conversations you have on your show is fascinating i mean i think you're the only person in the world to bring on ben shapiro and not discuss politics with him <laughs> uh, and so, and noam chomsky but not at the uh, same no, time <laughs> I, I, that's what i want that's my dream you know pairing is noam chomsky and or, and ben shapiro, ben shapiro. <laughs> let's see if it'll happen <laughs> i would tune in man so i would love to know how do you cultivate new learning in your life now what are some of the sources and how do you learn best yeah. So I'm always learning. I'm always reading. I've read 41 books just since COVID lockdown started um, just this year alone. Um, and I, I did a podcast. Actually, it was it was one of these podcasts that like was almost never uh, listened to or viewed. It was with a professor of psychiatry at Brown University where I got my PhD, but he studies addiction. And one of his ways of overcoming addiction to smoking, to eating, which I struggle with, um, pornography, which you know I don't struggle with uh, necessarily, but I know people that do, uh, and it's very crippling. And he says that the number one uh, tool outside of chemical, some people need chemical uh, treatments for that, and I don't begrudge that at all. I think they're, it's a lifesaver, literally prevents people from taking their own lives uh, to take medication. But in other cases, like with food, uh, he recommends a policy of pursuing curiosity and that curiosity investigating, why do I crave this, um, this jelly donut? Uh, why do I want this, you know, fattening piece of pizza? 
let me think about it. Is it true that I haven't eaten in, in days? No, I ate, you know, an hour ago in my case, you know, or uh, am I, am I thirsty? Am I tired? Like investigate the emotions that may be leading to the craving. And I brought this up. It came up in the context of my interview with Nobel prize winner, Barry Barish. Barry was saying, we penalize curiosity. What's the famous saying? Curiosity killed the cat. You know, it's like, it's, it's, it's dangerous. It's perilous to, to be curious. No, it's actually the opposite. We should encourage curiosity. Curiosity, according to Dr. Judd Brewer, is, uh, produces a tiny amount of dopamine when you receive new information. Uh, when you solve a puzzle, yeah, I see it with some of my kids. They'll do like a Rubik's cube. They'll get one of the sides. I always say like, I can do five sides of the Rubik's cube. I just can't get that last side. Uh, but they'll get one side and they'll just be like, I love it. And they'll do it again. Like, you want me to do the red side now, Dada? And I'll say, sure. Uh, because they get a little treat out of it. Now, is it any different to do the red side or the white side? No, but they got a little dopamine hit and I want to encourage that. And so I encourage it my kids. I encourage it myself. Curiosity is capable of producing the life-sustaining amounts of dopamine that we do need to continue to make improvements and to continue self-improvement. Uh, and so I find that uh, a very important component of, of why I learn so much and why I'm hoping to continue my addiction to learning and reading books and talking to brilliant people because you'll never learn enough on your own. Beautiful answer, man. Beautiful answer. My last question for you today, and then uh, please sign off and tell these guys where they can connect with you. And we link everything below is what makes a life worth living? Uh, well, for me, you know, I never really had as much of a desire to live as I do now. Uh, and that is probably largely in part to my, to my wife and to my kids. Uh, it's impossible not to think about the many, um, in the many ripples in space time that a child will make. And I know people that can't have, I'm actually writing another book with a colleague and she doesn't have kids. She calls herself a professional aunt with no kids, pank, which, you know, I know about spanking. I've been on the receiving end of spanking, but she's a pank, <laughs> Melanie Notkin. She's an amazing individual wall street journal, best-selling author. And, um, we talk about that because she doesn't have kids. I have kids. And, uh, but, we can all be parents to a kid and it doesn't mean that you have to adopt even in, in her case or, you know, even in, even in my case, I have kids, I might think about adopting someday. Uh, hopefully my wife's not listening, but, but anyway, uh, but you can be a mentor, even you, Joe, you're a young guy. You can be a role model to younger men and women that maybe don't have experience in whatever your realm is. That is what makes life worth living because that is the only way that we have time travel. Did you know that humans can experience time travel? Uh, it actually can happen, but it can't happen with your physical body yet, but it can happen with your morals and your values and the way you treat other people. I always say, you know, I might not be as rich as Bill Gates or Warren Buffett, but I can be as good as they are. I can be as ethical as they are. If you think they're ethical, I actually don't know much about them personally. But the point is, uh, you can you can have the greatest character traits. In Hebrew, it's called midot. And it's really like the essence of a person is their character. And you can transmit that to future generations, younger people than you, sometimes older people too, but younger people will time transport your ideas, your values, and the essence of who you are into the future. And that to me makes life worth living. I love that, man. Brian, it's been such a great pleasure speaking to you today. I've been looking forward to this conversation for about a month or so. Me too. Where, 
where can these guys connect with you, man? Tell these guys, give them the links and what. I'm trying to build up the YouTube channel, not, you know, because I'm uh, making so much money from it or anything, but because I'm having legacy conversations with Nobel prize winners and, and some of them have left this world. So uh, I, I really want people to tune in to the, to the podcast, which is on YouTube at Dr. Brian Keating, Dr. Brian Keating on YouTube. Uh, you can look up uh, any of my conversations. I have a playlist just with Nobel laureates. I have a playlist with the, you know, billionaires that I've interviewed. Uh, Jim Simons uh, is, a, is, a, is an amazing interview. He's never done a podcast before. Uh, and then, and then you know, kind of ordinary people that have done amazing, remarkable things. So that's Dr. Brian Keating on YouTube, Dr. Brian Keating on Twitter, Instagram, I'm rarely on. Uh, and then the Into the Impossible podcast which is, uh, uh, which is available on iTunes. And, uh, you know, I like to listen to, uh, you know, Freedom Impact in one earbud and then uh, Into the Impossible podcast. We just celebrate our 100th episode. So I got to get some love for that. So please do that. <laughs> I have a mailing list at briankeating.com and uh, sign up. I give away cool stuff like a signed uh, paper by a Nobel Prize winner, a book by my friends, Jen Levin, Sarah Seeger, uh, all sorts of cool swag. So sign up for that. I give away meteorites. These are pieces of planetary dust that vexed my Nobel Prize ambitions. I sometimes give those away, uh, at least for listeners in the U.S., because my university doesn't allow me to export dangerous Nobel Prizes or meteorites to other foreign dangerous nations like Wales. <laughs> Man, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode with me chopping it up with Dr. Keaton. We had some fun chatting about some of the deepest questions in the world today. We've almost wrapped up 2020. We've just got one episode left of the year, which goes out on Monday, which is a joint episode between Lewis and myself. So we're going to take this time, take 10 days off, something we've never done rest up and we're going to get ready for a massive 2021 if you haven't already please consider giving us a christmas present and leaving us a five star itunes review checking out our youtube channel or subscribing to our healthy wealthy and wise mailing list there's a link which can be found below for our newsletter thank you so much for tuning in on this weird and sometimes wonderful sometimes not year I hope that we have helped in any way we can this year make things slightly better. Thank you for tuning in. I will see you on Monday.